from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. I don't think that the the world after coronavirus is going to be the same. Life after COVID-19. Counterinsurgency expert and military strategist David Kilcullen, who served in the Australian Army and with the U.S. Army, says some unlikely things may be on the horizon. I also think we shouldn't discount the possibility. I think it's a low, low possibility, um, but the real possibility that there might be a conventional conflict arising out of this. And the U.S. supply chain. It's going to have to be changed. One of the things that this crisis has highlighted is that more than 90% of active pharmaceutical ingredients that go into U.S. Uh, medical supplies are sourced from China, uh, along with all the, the PPE that we, the personal protective equipment that we found ourselves short of in this crisis. A hard look at life after this coronavirus. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The whole world is waiting for the day that everything goes back to normal after this coronavirus scare is in the rear view mirror. Well, that's not going to happen for a while, at least until there's a vaccine for it. And even then, normal after COVID-19 is not going to be the same thing as normal before. Everyday life for ordinary citizens is likely going to be different. We know that. The concept of social distancing will likely be with us for a while. But there aren't many other things, really gigantic global elements that may change as a result like war and which countries hold the power. So on this program, we're talking with David Kilcullen, noted strategist and a former counterinsurgency advisor to General David Petraeus in the U.S. Army. He also served in the U.S. Army. He also served in the Australian Army, and he's an author. So now he joins us to tell us his thoughts right off the bat about what's going on with COVID-19 and how life's going to be different. Well, I think we're in uh, a period of significant global realignment, right? I mean, when the when the tsunami of this particular pandemic recedes, I think we're going to be looking at a very different military and geopolitical landscape. So I think sort of all bets are off. You know, a, a lot of future military analysis is based on straight line projections based on current trends. And this is a great example of why that's not always the best way to think about things. This is a classic discontinuity where when this is over, I think we're going to be dealing with a a pretty different landscape. Well, just how different are you talking about? What kinds of things would take place? Well, just a couple of sort of datum points. Um, Russia sent um, biological warfare teams to Italy this week and has, you know, 100 troops in a convoy moving around northern Italy 
helping Italy decontaminate uh, old people's homes, right? I think this is the first Russian military deployment to uh, to Italy, you know, let alone any other NATO member uh, in, in recent memory. Another example is uh, China sending shipments of uh, protective equipment to Italy. Uh, you may be aware that China actually owns a significant chunk of northeastern Italy and has uh, Italy was the first country in the EU to sign up to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative last May. So now we see in this crisis the EU not responding in a timely manner to Italy's needs. Italy actually ordering uh, protective equipment from factories in Germany and France and then those countries which are supposed to be part of a single market denying uh, the move of that those commodities to Italy, and then China and now Russia stepping in to fill that gap. Um, so it's a it's a very clever way of exploiting the geopolitics of this on the part of the Chinese and the Russians, but it also shows uh, a failure of resilience and preparedness on the part of of Western countries. So this is not um, something that's going to go back to normal you believe after this is over this is something that will likely continue yeah i don't think i don't think that the the world after coronavirus is going to be the same um i also think we shouldn't discount the possibility i think it's a low low possibility um but the real possibility that there might be a conventional conflict arising out of this um as you're probably aware uh at least two u.s aircraft carriers uh the roosevelt and the reagan in the Western Pacific currently have COVID-19 outbreaks on board. Uh, a third carrier is um, home ported out of an area near Seattle, which is one of the heaviest outbreaks in, uh, in the US. If US fleet units in the Pacific start to be put out of action by the, the virus at the same time as China's recovering, uh, you're gonna see some significant uh, risk, I think, of um, uh, miscalculation or of, uh, you know, deliberate military provocation in the Pacific. Would, based on your experience and what you're seeing, would China take that risk to uh, push something like that? I think China wouldn't consciously uh, seek to take that risk. But I do think that it's worth noting that the Chinese concept of warfare is significantly broader in its conceptualization than the Western concept. We tend to think about, you know, a clash of organized militaries on the battlefield, and we tend to dominate that form of warfare. The Chinese have gotten outside of that, looking at things like control of strategic commodities, uh, control over technologies like telecommunications. One of the things that this crisis has highlighted is that more than 90% of active pharmaceutical ingredients that go into U.S. Um, medical supplies are sourced from China, uh, along with all the, the PPE that we, the personal protective equipment that we found ourselves short of in this crisis. So I think the Chinese uh, are unlikely to deliberately seek a conventional military confrontation, but I do think that uh, they and others are going to try to use this uh set of circumstances to improve their position across the whole range of areas of competition short of armed conflict.
David, where do you think this virus came from? Well, we know it came from China. And as far as we know, it originated in the city of Wuhan in south central China, you know, sometime in the the third quarter of last year and first became widespread in November. It's worth pointing out that there's a pretty major bioweapons lab uh, belonging to the Chinese military uh, in Wuhan. There's also a virology center which has worked closely with Australian researchers and Canadians and uh, US uh, researchers as well over the years. Um, I don't think there's any clear evidence to suggest that this was a bioweapon or that it was um, you know, deliberately released or anything like that. I think there are conspiracy theories circulating about that, but I think they're you know, akin to the Chinese propaganda line that the U.S. Army created the virus. And I don't think there's any data to suggest that any of those things are true. I think what's more likely is that what are called wet markets, which are these open-air markets where multiple different exotic species are, are sold alive and slaughtered on the spot for human consumption, um, is, is where this originated from. And this has been known for years as a common source of novel viruses. And the CDC and the World Health Organization and even the Chinese authorities have um, acknowledged that in the past and taken actions to try to suppress that problem. So I think that's probably the most likely explanation. But of course, you know, we don't really know. This has impacted every single shred of human life as we know it. And that includes includes the collection of human intelligence. So how do you suppose the intelligence communities are going about getting their information? Uh, because social distancing has changed everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not involved with the intelligence community. Um, what I can say is that um, from what we see in the media, it looks like people are relying pretty heavily now on things like movement intelligence, so tracking uh, individual cell phones, on um, aggregating reports from you know, local observers into um, sort of like a community reporting networks. We know that some countries uh, have created apps that will track um, people's locations. Uh, and in some cases, for example, in, in Singapore and in, in uh, South Korea, if you are under quarantine and your phone is outside your house, you'll immediately get a phone call from the authorities to see uh, what you're up to. So I think what we're seeing is a pretty significant amount of domestic surveillance being um, either rolled out new or admitted for the first time. Uh, the Israelis, for example, recently admitted that they have extremely detailed um, movement intelligence on uh, on Israelis, which has been used for counterterrorism purposes to date, but they're now talking about using it for anti-pandemic uh, surveillance. So I think what we're going to see is a sort of re-emergence of the surveillance state in the West uh, and possibly the, you know, the emergence for the first time of in public of tools that have existed for uh, a long time. One of the things that the virus is doing, of course, is significantly shuttering businesses and uh, reducing movement patterns uh, across, you know, much of the world. So as a consequence, I think we, um, we're, we're going to see that some traditional forms of intelligence generate a lot less uh, information. Then the other point that I make is that, you know, this is a classic example today of 
one of the old intelligence ideas that, you know, um, absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence of absence. So we've got very limited reporting in Africa and some parts of Latin America and relatively low infection counts and case counts in many countries where it's almost certainly true that there's actually very significant uh, COVID-19 presence. There just isn't the um, the collection uh, or the data to tell us what's going on. How is this change or shift in the way intelligence is collected going to impact militaries of the world, especially the U.S.? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of the technical means are still, you know, relatively unaffected. It's worth pointing out, and this is publicly known, that uh, NORAD, you know, Northern U.S. Northern Command, and the um, yes, uh, have actually deployed watch teams to Cheyenne Mountain uh, in Colorado and isolated them from everybody else within the command to avoid them getting sick. And we now have people on sort of, um, you know, a heightened level of watch uh, inside the mountain there trying to uh, avoid uh, coming down with the virus. What that does mean is that we've got, you know, satellites and other assets that are available to surveil what's going on uh, across the planet. Um, But, of course, a lot of what's important in uh, military planning, as, as you mentioned, isn't necessarily visible on a satellite. It has to do with human intention. Um, and I think that's where, you know, the additional strain on the internet and everything else from everybody working from home now um, is creating a significant bandwidth challenge for some of those traditional uh, reporting networks. So I think we'll see what, what happens, but I'd, I'd be surprised if there isn't a, a re-evaluation after this of how uh, particularly indicators and warnings of major events uh, get collected and how we do, uh, you know, some people call basic intelligence. So understanding what's going on in the environment as distinct from what an adversary might be planning to do. This has been such a bizarre sequence of events for the average person. How has this been compared to any other disaster or pandemic or situation that you've seen at any time in your life? How does it work? Uh, well, it's funny. I, I think this... It, it, this feels to me a little bit like how it felt to be in the military on 9-11, where the world kind of turned on a dime overnight and you woke up the morning after the attacks and there was an entirely different uh, environment. Um, you know, General Shoemaker, who was head of the U.S. military at one U.S. Army at one point, um, made the comment a number of years ago that we had been an army at war in a nation that felt like it was at peace, that, you know, we our lives had all been turned upside down by 9-11, but for most people outside New York and Washington, uh, life kind of went on more or less as it had in the past. I think what's different now is it affects everybody, and it's a dramatic change for everyone. Um, when I compare this to 9-11, the thing that worries me is all the extremely intrusive and draconian measures that we put in place after 9-11, like the Patriot Act and the authorization for the use of military force in um, Afghanistan and then in Iraq uh, and all the travel restrictions and the you know TSA <clears throat> and so on, um, all of which were put in place supposedly as temporary measures after 9-11 and all of which are still in place. So when I see all the very draconian you know restrictions to freedom of assembly and freedom of movement, 
and the disparate impact on different population groups across society of all those um, different regulations, I do hope that we don't have a repeat of what happened after 9-11 where things that were supposed to be temporary turned out to be more or less permanent. What is the most important thing that stakeholders in the national security community should remember moving forward? I think we've spent a lot of time looking at national security and approaching things through the lens of money and military tools. I think we also need to, you know, that, that's not wrong. We need to still have that approach. But I think the big lesson here is that local resilience. Um, so, you know, the ability of cities and states and counties, hospitals um, to respond to these kinds of challenges that aren't necessarily uh, military in nature, you know, needs to be part of the the national calculus as well. And I think one of the key issues here is understanding how our global supply chains and our just-in-time logistics systems and our reliance on imported sources for uh, critical um, commodities can actually have a pretty major negative effect in the event of something like this. You know, um, after the coronavirus led to a a spat between the US and China about who was responsible. China overtly threatened that if the US didn't play nicely with China, it would shut off the, uh, the, the supply chain for critical commodities coming into the US, including medicines and personal protective gear. That should wake everybody up that perhaps we have been um, too reliant on just-in-time logistics, too much focused on efficiency rather than resilience. And too willing to give over control of critical elements of our society to people that aren't, don't necessarily have our interest at heart. And it's not just China, it's, it's anyone. Is there anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Uh, look, I think the, the only other thing that I would say is, <clears throat> I think if you look around the world, it's easy sitting here in the US to criticize our response and to um, feel that we're, you know, we're doing very, very badly in this circumstance. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that's quite true. I think that what we're about to see in this country is, you know, the national genius for improvisation, for surging, uh, for cooperating when the chips are down. Uh, you know, I've read an article of uh, this morning suggesting that uh, the auto industry could produce you know, as many as 100,000 respirators, or, or ventilators in the next uh, 100 days uh, between, you know, 50,000 from Ford and General Electric and another large chunk from GM and others. So that kind of ability to organize and surge as a society, plus the ability of people at the local level to rally around and help each other, I think that we're going to see some, not only some frightening things, but also some inspiring things from our society in the next uh, couple of months as this thing plays out. How did we miss this? How did the U.S. get this kind of wrong? It looks as though we're, 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 we're fighting a battle that, in part, we created ourselves. So how did we do that? Well, I think it's, it's multiple. Like any big problem, there's usually multiple factors that lead to it. I think one factor was China obfuscating the cause of this and delaying uh, admi admitting that it was human-to-human -human transmission until a couple of months after they knew that that was almost certainly the case and allowing tens of thousands of people from Wuhan to travel uh, all over the world, which meant that by the time uh, in the US and other countries, by the time we began to recognize that the 
virus was a problem, it had already been circulating in, in the community for some time. Uh, and I think we compounded that, you know, Chinese cause of the problem by being a little bit um, cavalier and, uh, you know, complacent initially, and also by our own political, you know, bipartisan divide where everything turned into a pro or anti uh, talking point that led to people not really thinking about it as uh, a real world problem that we needed to deal with, but more as a political point scoring exercise. So I think there's a number of, of, of areas in which we're at fault, but I think the problem started in China. It was compounded by Chinese Communist Party not being willing to tell the truth about it, uh, and then further compounded by us being slow off the mark and by our own internal political divisions making it hard for us to come up with a unified response. I've been to Cheyenne Mountain, and mm -hmm. I've seen that facility, which is it's basically a city into its unto itself. Yeah. Um, what do you think the significance of moving people there is in this situation? Well, I think it's the military realizing that there's a significant risk that uh, if large numbers of people get infected with the virus, that it could really uh, limit the military's ability to maintain the you know the various defense postures that it, it does globally and and acting to prevent that from happening and i think the emergence of the disease on at least two aircraft carriers now suggests that that was a pretty wise move on the part of um northern command that's david kilcullen david thanks well, all right david, thank you very much thanks, JJ. Appreciate, appreciate this no we're good. it's good thanks man David Kilcullen is a former soldier, a military strategist, a professor at Arizona State University, and an author. On our next program, we continue digging into the coronavirus origin, and it appears there are way more deaths in Wuhan than we suspected. Because information we've discovered indicates that urns are pouring in to that region. The estimates, I believe, are about 3,500 a day to seven mortuaries in, in Hunan. And uh, well, clearly what it suggests is that the casualty rate is far, far higher than the Chinese government is saying. Nicholas F. Timiades is a Chinese expert who's retired from the U.S. intelligence community. And they're covering up, as could be expected, they're covering up the casualties that uh, that they suffered in this. And the British government, you know, internally, the British government, you know, publicly came out that they estimated the casualties in China to be anywhere from 15 to 40 times the number publicly released. What China is hiding and why they're hiding it, coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. That's wtop.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And you can also sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. And you can sign up for it at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Starting a podcast? Then check out Launchpad DM, powered by Podcast One. Launchpad is the place to launch and host your new or existing podcast. And did we mention that it's free? It's easy to use and provides podcasters with overall control and flexibility 
versus the platforms of any competitor. Launchpad provides unlimited hosting and access to a dashboard with all of your show's analytics. You own and control everything, including your subscribers. Launchpad DM is a great discovery tool to help people find your podcast. You may even get invited to join the official Podcast One roster with even more perks like access to producers, marketers, sales teams, and more. Sign up today at launchpaddm.com and let us help you become the next big podcaster. That's launchpaddm.com. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.